Father, we thank You again for Your grace, for how the Lord Jesus Christ has taken our sins upon Him, and how You have resolved this great mystery that to the Old Testament saints was not clear at all, and that You resolved it in a perfectly orderly way, and one which we can look back now and say how wonderful uh, is Your plan. We pray now that the Holy Spirit will illuminate our hearts to the truth that you have intended to reveal to us through Scripture. Again, asking this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. If you'll turn uh, to page 47 in the notes, uh, I want to start by reviewing these covenants. Um, tonight we will sort of finish this section and that we're going to have a break for two weeks. Next week, I'll be out of town, and the week after that is the great drama here. Um, and so, we'll uh, forego classes for two weeks. So, remember, no class next week, no class uh, the week after. And then when we come back, we'll start actually with um, the doctrinal material on page 50 while we get into sanctification. And we'll spend a week or two on that. We'll be done with that. And then we'll move into a new, the next event in the series, which will be the, the event of creation. Um, just to review a little bit where we're going. The... Uh, period of Old Testament history that we're studying, I've sort of characterized as a revelation of the discipline that God gave toward his people Israel over these centuries. And it's preserved for us in the text of the Bible in many, many hundreds and hundreds of pages of reading. So obviously, the God must have a purpose in revealing that. And even though we tend to neglect that portion of the Bible, uh, it has a lot of emphasis. And if you look on the right side where we've listed the events and then we've listed the doctrines that are implied and revealed in those events, you'll see that again and again it's the same doctrine over and over and over. The same area of truth, sanctification, sanctification, which deals with Christian growth. And we've dealt with it in the Solomonic period, the time when the kingdom was divided, the kingdoms in decline, which we're now finishing up, uh, tonight and next and two weeks from now. And then the next event we're going to move on to would be the exile. And that introduces a whole new ball game because now there is no nation Israel left. And the Jews are living in Gentile uh, domain. Now, in that area, you're going to have the uh, issue of Daniel. You'll have the issue of the four great kingdoms. And so... We'll, we'll get into the Gentile part, part of history then. And we tend to look less and less on Israel and more on, on the Gentile world. Then we're going to deal with the restoration uh, period. That'll take us probably to May and June. And that'll finish the series for, for this year, or for this semester, kind of. Um, in the fall, we'll pick up then with the New Testament and get into the Gospels. Tonight... On page 47, I've kind of tried to summarize everything we've done the last couple of months <clears throat> dealing with these covenants. 
my purpose in showing you this table uh, will become hopefully obvious after by, by the end of the hour. Um, what I'm trying to demonstrate is that the Bible insists that God controls history by means of contracts between himself and man. And Dr. Albright, who for many years was the Dean of American Archaeology at Johns Hopkins, Albright, uh, in one of his books, mentioned that it's a very interesting point, he said, but that the Hebrew people are the only people in all the history of man whose God ever made a covenant. The pagan religions have no covenant-making God. And that's very important for us. The reason, once again, just to review, why do human beings make covenants? Why do we make contracts? Why, when you buy a house or buy a car, do you make a contract? A contract specifies a meeting of the minds that two parties agree to certain behavior. There are certain expectations. That's what contracts are all about. And contracts, of course, presuppose character. That's why one of the marks of a pagan society, according to the Apostle Paul, is that they will be covenant breakers and contract breakers. And we see this all through our society today. So God, in these, these covenants, enters into a meeting of the minds with a verbal revelation between himself and certain people. He makes certain promises and as the centuries go by, the Bible records the behavior of God and the behavior of man, answering the question of who is faithful to this covenant. So the covenants are vital because they establish the, the rules. They set up the framework. So let's review on page 47 then some of the covenants we've covered. And then we'll, we, because what we want to do now is we, last week we got into the new covenant. So we look back, the first covenant we studied two years ago in the series was the new world covenant or the Noahic covenant. The parties to the covenant, notice, God and the Noahic human race and animals. They were part and parcel of the covenant. The sign of the Noahic covenant still exists in our atmosphere. It's the rainbow. The legal terms of that covenant is that there will be an eternal survival of the human race and there will be no more global flood. The human race will not go to extinction because of some asteroid. God's word says that the human race will survive forever. In a re obviously, it's going to be a resurrected form, but the human race will survive. And, the fa and these covenants, because they are made between a holy God and a fallen human race are always instituted on the basis of a blood covenant. So, we have the covenant is no sacrifice, the founding sacrifice of that covenant. Then we came down to the Abrahamic covenant. And that's the anchor. You can asterisk that covenant because that's the anchor covenant for history, for redemption. The New World Covenant is the anchor covenant for physical environment of the human race. All ecological questions that people talk about ecology and so on and the environment and this and that, it's really controlled by the Noahic Covenant. That spells out, so to speak, the room. The Abrahamic Covenant spells out what God is doing inside the room. So the Abrahamic Covenant is redemptive. The Noahic Covenant is preservative. 
There's no direct redemption in the Noahic covenant. There is in the Abrahamic covenant. The parties to the covenant are God and the Abrahamic progeny, whoever they may be. And that's a matter for revelation as to who the Abrahamic prodigy are. But we know at least it started with Abraham. So God and Abraham. The sign of that covenant was God's oath. Remember the oath of maldiction. When God, and if you look at the Hebrew language, it's very intense when he comes to Abraham and he says, may I be damned if this covenant is not kept. It's exactly that kind of thing. The oath of maldiction. And the second uh, sign of the covenant was circumcision. And circumcision was given because of certain metaphorical implications as far as theology, as far as propagation goes, as far as reproduction, the sin nature of man, and so on and so forth. The legal terms, the land, the seed, and the worldwide blessing. And God's sacrifice. That was, remember, Abraham and Isaac and so forth. The Sinaitic Covenant, we studied that last year. God and the tribes of Israel. Please notice the parties to the contracts. It's going to be very important when we get to the last one. These contracts are made with, with defined groups of people. The sign of the Sinaitic Covenant is the Sabbath, keeping of the seventh day. Legal terms, there were hundreds of them all had one goal to show loyalty to Jehovah God or Yahweh as, as the Hebrew would say. The founding sacrifice was Moses and the elders conducted the sacrifice at the point of the Exodus. Then we came to the Davidic covenant. The contract doors, the parties of the contract, God once again, and on the human side it was David and his progeny. The sign was the survival of the royal line. And the legal terms of that covenant, it specified there would be a father-son relationship between God and David and his progeny. Important, and this is going to come out more and more, and it's been behind the last two chapters in these notes, chastening but not rejection. Chastening but not rejection. The Davidic covenant theologically introduces a new idea. I mean, it's not new in the sense that obviously it was truth that was still there before, but new in the sense now God talks more about it, makes it clearer. Here's what's new. What's new about the Davidic covenant is that there's a difference between being a believer and being in fellowship with God. So you can be a believer and lose fellowship with God and you do not lose your salvation. And this is a, is a dynamic that's embedded in that covenant because the progeny of David would be saved because God's Spirit would not depart, but on the other hand, they would be chastened with a rod of men for their disobedience. And fellowship with God would be broken, which obviously now introduces the issue of restoration and so on. A third uh, point on legal terms of the Davidic covenant is that Jerusalem will be the center of the Davidic reign and power and glory. Jerusalem has a great future ahead of itself. The problem is that we can't find a founding sacrifice for the Davidic covenant. It's missing. And the only hint you get is in Psalm 16 when David says that uh, he would not see corruption. And that would imply a sacrifice and death and so on. 
Now, last time, we came to the New Covenant. And what we want to do tonight is we want to look at two passages of Scripture, uh, once again, to see the structure of this covenant. So if you'll hold, turn first to Deuteronomy chapter 30, this tells us how Moses looked forward to it centuries before it happened. Deuteronomy chapter 30, date of Deuteronomy chapter 30, about 1400 B.C., And when you get to Deuteronomy 30, if you hold the place and turn over to Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 31, because chapter 31 is the giving of the new covenant. So we're talking about the time from 1400 B.C. on down to the vicinity of 700 B.C. Seven centuries have gone by. That's a long time. Now, we Americans think our country's gone on. Our country's only gone on 200 years, and the rate it's going not going to last much longer. So, about two, two or three centuries. Well, we're talking now about seven centuries, three times the duration of America's existence between Deuteronomy 30 and Jeremiah. Okay, now if we're going to compare sections. If you start with chapter 30 of Deuteronomy and look at verses 3, 4, and 5. Then the Lord will restore you from captivity. See, God is looking forward. Even though this is back then, it's looking forward by centuries of time. And God is saying, remember we introduced this last week, we said in chapter 30, verse 1, so it shall be when all of these things shall come upon you, you as Israel, all the things which come upon you are all the cursings of chapter 29. So when all these things have come, past tense, they've cleared, they've happened, they've occurred, when they have all come, the blessing and the curse which I set before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you, there's the exile. So the exile, whatever this prophecy is, is talking about something that occurs after this event down here, the exile. So when you return to the Lord, obey Him, and so on. Then the Lord will restore you from captivity. Now, in beginning in verse 3 and 4 and 5, this is the restoration and the resolution of Old Testament problems. The Old Testament has showed the fact that men cannot obey God consistently. We constantly fail. So how does history ever going to get resolved? And that's why prophecy looks down the corridor of time to the point when history does get resolved. And we'll look into that a little bit more. But verses 3, 4, and 5, Then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity, have compassion on you, will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If you're outcasts at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord God will gather you, and from there He will bring you back. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed. Now, that's only one area of real estate qualifies for that phrase. It's the literal land of Israel. Eretz Israel. He will enter the land which your fathers possessed, and you, that is the group of Jews that will return in the future to that land, and you will possess it. And he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. That's the future of Israel. And it's predicated upon 
resolution to the problem of their sin. Their sin was what excluded them from the land. And it says in um, um, verse 2, you will return to the Lord your God. And that's the mystery. How are they going to return to the Lord? But they will in some future time. And whenever that happens, then the regathering occurs. And you'll notice the regathering occurs after verse 2, not before verse 2. So the regathering in verses 3 and 4 cannot be the gathering of the Jews today into the land. That's a prelude to this. But that, that, what you, we're seeing today since 1948 is not a fulfillment of these particular verses. All right. So this happens, and they come back into the land. Now, let's turn over to, uh, to uh, Jeremiah chapter 31. When Jeremiah, by, led by God the Holy Spirit starts to talk about a new covenant that God is going to make in history. Chapter 31 and um, verse 23. Verse 23 and 24. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, once again they will speak this word in the land of Judah and in its cities when I restore their fortunes. The Lord bless you, O abode of righteousness, O holy hill. So whatever is going to happen, the people are back in the land, but the difference is, O abode of righteousness. Somehow, the necessary righteousness that qualifies them for God's blessing will be available, like it wasn't in Jeremiah's day. And Judah and all its cities will dwell together in it, the farmer and they who go about with flocks, for I will satisfy the weary runs and refresh everyone who languishes. So we have here a promise of God toward these people. Now if you look down, that's coming into the land. Now in verse 33 through 34, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. You'll notice when the covenant is made. The covenant is made with Israel after those days. All right? I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God. They shall be my people. They shall not teach again. Each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. So, this prophecy is talking about the regeneration of the nation Israel. It's not talking about the church. The church hasn't happened yet. The church, we're going to get to the church next year. But right now we're in the Old Testament and the church isn't here. This is Israel. So let's read it the way it was originally intended. The, this is looking forward to the future of Israel. And verse 34 implies that evangelism is not going to be needed because they shall all know me. Now the furthermore... So we have the land, don't we? That's the, they're back in the land, verses 23 through 24. Verses 33 and 34, they are obviously the seed of the Lord. Now if we drop down in the same chapter to verses 36 and 37, we have their security and the fact that they rule. 
If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also shall not cease from being a nation before me forever. Eternal promise. Thus saith the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then will I also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done. And the idea there is that history comes to resolution, finally. All right, that's the new covenant. And that's the covenant that promises the restoration of Israel to the land. The question we're going to deal with in the next few things is this restoration. Is this restoration at the end of the Old Testament a fulfillment of that ultimate restoration? All right, moving on for a minute now to some of the issues that we want to look at that are going on in all these 16 prophetic books. If you look at the chart on page 47 again, you'll see we're looking now at this new covenant, which we've just seen in Jeremiah 31, and the parties to the covenant are God and the future nation of Israel. What is the sign of this new covenant? It's not given in the Old Testament. But we know what the sign is because what did Jesus do in the Last Supper? He held up the cup and what did he say? This is my blood of the new covenant. So with that, the Lord Jesus reveals something that had hitherto been kept in the counsels of God himself. Nobody in the Old Testament knew how this new covenant was going to come into existence. The dynamic of the whole thing was just kept hidden from man. And when Jesus Christ and the Last Supper got up and made that dramatic announcement, we, we read it because we're so familiar with it and every communion service go through the same thing, hear it again and again, and because we're so familiar with it, the drama of it being a surprise. That was a surprise announcement that happened in that first communion service. Nobody ever heard those words before Jesus uttered them. He was claiming that he was the one who would bring in the new covenant. But you remember, we just got through reading in Jeremiah that said that I will make a new covenant with them in those days. The days when? The days when Israel is go are going to repent and come back into the land. Well, there's no mention in the communion when the Lord Jesus got up and said that. He didn't say that the new covenant was coming into force at that point. What he said was that the blood of the new covenant is mine. Now, obviously, there's a reason why the new covenant couldn't be of Jeremiah chapter 31 fulfilled in Jesus' day. And why was that? Was the nation repentant? Were all the nation turning to the Messiah on Palm Sunday? It looked that way. What happened only a few days after Palm Sunday? They were crying to crucify him. So the nation had not accepted the Messiah. So now we have a problem that the New Testament has to deal with theologically. The Messiah has come. He has called the nation to repentance. The nation rejects him, and the very rejection causes a crucifixion that sets up the new covenant. So the new covenant is there, it's ready, but it's unactivated because the nation Israel isn't ready. So there's been kind of a, a funny thing happened. And the New Testament is coming to grips with that. That's what all the epistles are talking about. What do we do here? What's this new thing that's happened 
where, you know, before we were all clear, we were all of Israel, all of Israel, all of Israel, and those are the Gentiles out there. And now all of a sudden we have Jesus rejected by his own people, and we've got a new thing happen. And then Pentecost happens, and all kinds of things happen. That's all new. But that is not really seen here yet in the Old Testament. So, on our chart, the sign of that new covenant is Jesus' blood. Now, the legal terms of the covenant, notice, national regeneration of Israel, the post-dispersion regathering, and worldwide dominancy. They will reign with God. The founding sacrifice appears to be the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the covenant is kind of half here and half not here. And that's the difficulty in reconciling the Old and the New Testament. We've got a theological thing going on here. All right, those are the covenants. We've added one covenant to that chart. Remember the, the land covenant, and that was Deuteronomy 29 and 30. That was the promise of the Palestinian covenant. Okay, we've come now to the end of this section that ends on top page 48 of the notes. And we conclude that first full paragraph on page 48, the third approach of the Old Testament prophets to Israel created a forward-looking hope toward Yahweh's future work to deliver the nation from its sin. History interpreted covenantally by the prophets. What do we mean, interpreted covenantally? What did these guys do? They were his students of history. Now, I don't know about you, but I've, I've said this many times, when we're, when we're taught in school, in history classes, and you probably get a quiz question that says, uh, who were the first historians? And the answer is always Herodotus and Thucydides because they were the Greeks and these guys sat down and started writing history. Well, sorry, um, that's not true. The first historians were the prophets of the Old Testament. And it's very important that we believers understand this. This is not just a little fine trivia point for a history course. This is more than that. The reason you want to be clear as to who the first historians are is because we want to know why bother with history, period. What was the motivation originally to study history? The motivation was, I want to observe the God of creation work out the promises of his covenants. That was the motive to study history. And you'll never get that in a secular classroom. Never. And most teachers never have the theology to, to, to teach it because they weren't ever taught it. And you're not going to get it on Dan Rather's CBS News. So you forget it there. And the only place you're going to get this is in the Bible because it's the only place that reveals it. And there's so few people that study it anymore who even understand the language, leave alone the ideas. Okay, so we have then, in the Old Testament, history interpreted covenantally. It is not a series of marbles. I can remember as a non-Christian going to high school, being terribly bored in history class, because all it ever appeared to me was memorizing a bunch of dates for the quiz next week. And I could forget them for that quiz and wait for the next set of dates for the next quiz and go through and so forth. So... The, and, and the reason why I was bored, now I realize, is after I became a Christian, I realized, wait a minute, history has a pattern to it. God doesn't administer history randomly. This is not a crapshoot. 
history has a pattern and a schema behind it. And why that's important, we'll see in a few minutes, is because our lives and the details in our personal lives are embedded in this historical structure. So the, co- the prophets interpret covenantally and they are models for how you and I should interpret events around us personally during the week. We should be interpreting the events of our lives using the same mentality as the prophets of the Old Testament interpreted their nation's history. It's interpreted in the sense of a framework. So they interpreted covenantally by the prophets, showed clearly two things. The unchanging faithfulness of God and the widespread disobedience of man, both people and leadership. Why do we say that? Book of Judges. Was that people or leaders? It was basically people, remember? How does the book of Judges end? Every man did what every man did what was right in his own eyes. Why? Because there was not yet a king in Israel, no leader. Well then all the other books that we've studied, this whole series here, from Solomon on, what does that show about the leadership? It shows you leadership wasn't any better than the people. So kings have all been sinners because people are sinners. So that's why we say that demonstrated in this history is the sin of all levels of society. It's fashionable. Once in a while, everybody, you know, we get in this democratic spirit and we're going to knock all the leaders. Well, the leaders are sinful, yeah, but it's a reflection upon us. Where the leaders come from? The body politic. So this is a demonstration then of, of man's failure to adhere to God's laws. That's the lesson in this period. And then we say in that same paragraph, the chosen nation was being chastened by the rod of men under the sovereign control of Yahweh with no appeal left for survival on the basis of the Sinaitic Covenant. Once the Sinaitic Covenant curses went into effect, the nation lost its legal standing. Couldn't appeal on the basis of the Sinaitic Covenant. Yahweh had divorced his queen nation, put her away, but he would somehow remarry her in the future. And that's the whole story. Now we come to the unresolved tension left in the Old Testament. And we want to spend some time on this because it applies to us. And I want to go show you how it applies to us in a very practical area by showing you this chart that we've studied again and again and again. The critic of the Christian faith loves this one because inevitably you'll get into discussion and somebody will say, well, I don't believe God can be exist because there can't be a loving God who is also omnipotent because if God were able and he had the strength and he had the love, he would put away all suffering from history. And if he isn't, then he's not omnipotent. He's not able to do it. Either he's willing and unable or he is able and unwilling. So you've got a contradiction in your God. And this is a major problem in the Christian faith in the sense that it is a, an apparent difficulty. And frankly, if I were a non-Christian, where I would attack the Christian faith is right here. I wouldn't bother with evolution. I'd attack right here. Because this attacks at the very nature of God himself and our faith. And we've said that God... In the Christian view, here's the Christian view of history, here's the non-Christian pagan view of history. And at any given moment, we're operating in one of these two frameworks. 
There's no such thing as a neutral person. Everybody holds to one or the other, and we ourselves aren't contradictory as we go from week to week in our lives. Let's look for review here. The non-Christian holds that history is full of good and evil together. But he's got a problem. Because they don't believe ultimately in a creation of the biblical kind, and they don't believe in a consummation of the biblical kind, this goes on forever and ever. It always has been and always will be. So, we have good and evil. Uh, I've used the, the emblem in the, on the Korean flag, but it's the yin-yang symbol from the Orient. And that symbol is saying that all of history is darkness and light. It's a symbol of both. You have to have both of them to have reality. Now, that's a false, false idea. Because up here, what is the difference? Let's review this. What's the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian position? Look carefully in those charts. On the bottom chart, you only see one level of existence. On the second one, the one up above, you see two levels. You see creator and you see creation. So because we have two levels of existence, now this makes all the difference in the world. Now we have a creator who is always good, forever and ever. So we have our eternality, which the pagan says the universe is eternal because he can't separate the creator from the creation. The universe came in the beginning was gas. That's basically what the pagan view is. So there's always matter, just eternally existing, death eternally there. If there was life on another planet, you'd have death there too, so on and so forth. If you took a time machine and went out a million years in the future, you'd still have death. If you went back 40 million years, you'd still have death. Death, 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 death. Never get away from it. And this is why in the, in the, in the naive areas of our country where people think this is hot new stuff, called New Age, and they like to mimic the Oriental, they really show the lack of depth of thinking about this. In the Orient, they understand this. And you know where this leads? This leads to an aversion to reincarnation. In the Orient, the idea is, you know, you can be reincarnated, reincarnated, reincarnated. They've thought it through far more than the Americans. They thought it all through and said, hey, wait a minute. If I'm reincarnated and I'm reincarnated and I'm reincarnated, what do I come back to all the time? Every time I'm reincarnated, what do I come back to? Death. I'm reincarnated a third time, what do I come back to? I die again and I die again and I die again. So I never, no matter what happens, reincarnation doesn't solve the problem. It just repeats it. So, in the Christian position, we have an answer. But in the pagan position, there is no answer. And that's why in the Orient, salvation in Buddhism and the other religions there, they, they are smart enough to see they've got a problem. So they answer the problem by saying that salvation is nirvana, salvation is the dissolution of your existence. A drop goes into the ocean. What is that? That is spiritual suicide. That is ultimate salvation from a pagan viewpoint. In America, though, we're so, so naive when we pick up this thing, we think in, in, reincarnation is cool. You read all of this in the New Age literature, in the Internet and so on, that this is a big deal. Oh, people are stupid 
It's a stupid idea. And the people who have had centuries to think it through know it's stupid. It's only the idiots that think that reincarnation is cool because they haven't thought it through. That on the thousandth and eighth time you reincarnated, you're still suffering and dying. Who wants to do that? One thousand eight times. Once enough for me. So now we come to the Christian position and that God is eternally good. The creation when it left His hand was good and there was no death and there was no sorrow. And then the fall came and the fall is not equated to creation. The fall was the point when the creature rebelled against the Creator and that started it. It started physical death in the Garden of Eden. You have to take these stories literally, people. If you don't take them literally, you might as well just kiss off the whole thing because you just lost the answer. If the Bible cannot be read in normal linguistic fashion, you ought to just chuck it. So, the creation and the fall. The fall starts, and from the fall toward us, yes, now we have good and evil mixed. And we call this period of history abnormal. The pagan calls it normal. Normal existence of the non-Christian is both. Normal existence of the Christian is only good. We can never be upset. We are always upset by death and sorrow and suffering. And everybody really is because all men are created in God's image. Even the non-Christian knows deep in his soul there's something abnormal about little kids shooting each other. Then we come down to the judgment. And that's the other end of history. You can't have one without the other. Christianity brackets evil between the fall and the judgment, and from the judgment on, what does God do? He rips the good and the evil apart. So now we have a solution. We don't have 1,008 reincarnations. We, we have an eternal separation of good and evil. People say, oh, that's horrible. That means that some people go to hell. That's right. It's great, because it separates good and evil. If you don't believe that, then you go back to the paganism. So you have to choose one or the other, and you can't make up an in-between. It's one or it's the other view. Now, what my point in reviewing all this from the fall is that in the Christian position to walk in faith that this view is true demands something. Let's look at what it demands. And the Old Testament prophets knew how to deal with this. We're going to go back to them in just a moment, but I want to show you what we, what we have to deal with every day when we walk like this. God is sovereign. He is holy. He's love. He's omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, immutable, eternal. Now, those are His attributes. Those attributes answer to things in your soul and mine because we're made in God's image. What answers to God's sovereignty? Human choice. What answers to His holiness? Human conscience. What answers to His love? Love. What answers to His omniscience? Human knowledge. Human knowledge. Let's look at human knowledge a moment. Because we have to, we down here as creatures, live like this, not like this. The problem with human knowledge is that it's always limited. And I've shown you this back two or three years ago, but again, just to remember, there's a diagram of all human experience. Whether you're a scientist, whether you're just the ordinary person, 
no matter what experience you have, you're always inside the box. There's always further things further out that you'll never, ever experience. So you're always limited. That's human knowledge. Well, if human knowledge is always limited, then how do we answer the dilemma that we're walking by faith and not being irrational? Now, that's the charge brought against believers, that you people are naive because you are walking around and by, when you say you believe something, what you're really saying is, I don't know. Well, in one sense, that's true. I don't know why, for example, the two kids went out and shot the, their, their players. We maybe never know. Or we never know why a baby you know, sits there and breathes for two and a half minutes and then dies. We don't know exactly the particulars. We know the big scheme, though. We know the frame of reference. We can bracket that. The problem here is that human knowledge is limited. So, all men, whether believers or unbelievers, have to deal with this. Now, the smart unbelievers in the West argue that faith equals irrationalism. That is, you, in order to believe, have to accept that there is no answer. Because human knowledge is limited, you have just admitted you don't have the answer, so therefore when you guys say you walk by faith, you're believing in an irrationalism. Now let's answer that. If you just consider human knowledge, this is correct. Because if we don't have access to the answers, and we, by definition, are the only ones who do the knowing, then isn't it true that belief is walking in irrationalism? But the answer is, we're not the only knowers. Who's the other knower? God is. The Creator. Who is omniscience and has infinite knowledge? Right there. God does. Therefore, our limited knowledge does not force us into an irrationalism. We can walk around and say, I can deal with this suffering situation because I know behind it there's a loving God who has planned it. And I'm not just saying hocus-pocus words. I believe that. I believe that God is omniscient and He's thought it all through. I can't know the details. Maybe someday I'll know more of them. But the point is, when I walk by faith, I am not believing in irrationalism. Faith is not a weakness. It is viewed out there in the public as that when you believe, you've retreated. You can't know it for sure, so you just, just believe it. Believing, in other words, is viewed as weak knowledge. That's the unbelieving idea. But that's not a biblical idea. Faith recognizes the limitations of human knowledge and accepts the fact that we have a verbally revealing God contractually revealing Himself, contractually revealing Himself, giving us terms in His covenants that bracket the situation and tell us the big, big picture. Now, if you go back in the notes to page 30, you'll see that back then I reviewed something we had done a, few, a year or two before, and I remind you of this because I want to see, I want you to see how this whole thing is, is, is so neatly uh, answered by the way the Old Testament ends and, and moves into the New Testament.
I am consciously aware of from my study of the Scripture. So that's not meant to be a totally final word. That's just a summary of scriptural data. There are six reasons or patterns why we suffer directly for what we do in Scripture. There are also five reasons, at least, that aren't at all related to what we do. You say, well, that's not very fair. Well, we live in a fallen world. And there is not, suffering is not always in one-to-one relationship to your personal choices. Sometimes it is. Remember the six, place, six choices Scripture says. The effect of the fall. Whose choice? Adam and Eve. What's the result? Physical and spiritual death, sickness, and natural disturbances in the creation. Two, the effect of personal sin. This is self-induced misery and it's the fruit of foolishness. And we all suffer from that one. Bad choices. Third, shared suffering within families and nations. Nation ruled by idiots suffers. Many of the African nations, you talk to missionaries, suffer. Just read an article the other day. Finally, Jimmy Carter and some of his people went over to Ethiopia and they found out that the Ethiopians, in spite of all the drought, could feed themselves and have a grain surplus. You know what the problem was? They had a group of scientists working over there of their own and they figured out the kind of grains that were drought resistant. But because they have kind of a class distinction, the guys in the laboratory couldn't stand the guys that were the farmers. So they never told them about it. So the farmers were importing western seeds that aren't supposed to grow in the drought. And they said, hey guys, got an idea for you. How about taking the seeds over here that you groomed that grow in the drought and plant them? Just see what happens. Ooh, now we've got a grain surplus in Ethiopia. Big discovery here. I mean, this took high technology to do. See? But how many Ethiopians starved while these guys are playing social caste system? See? That's an example. Four, eternal suffering in the lake of fire. People who die and do not trust in the Lord Jesus Christ are swept aside. And it's not because they're, they're God's a meanie. What is God's objective in history? To separate good and evil. To solve the evil problem. Five. This is the one, number five, and you can asterisk number five, because number five is the pattern we have studied for the last three months in the Old Testament. Fatherly chastening of believers. It's the chastening that God gave to His people. The king's discipline. We have that in the New Testament. And it can be very severe, including death. God will kill believers. Hebrews, 1 Corinthians. Death can be administered by the Father. And I'll show you examples of this when we get into the doctrinal section. Six, denial of rewards. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where believers have rewards and then they lose them because of carnality, because of rebellion, because of rejection of the Lord, because they get out of the grace mentality. Go over to works and they find out the works don't work because God isn't interested in works. He's interested in grace-born activities. Six reasons, sobering reasons. Now, on the other side, there are other reasons why we suffer. And, of course, in the average situation, all these are mixed together. So you'd have to be an inspired prophet to pull them all apart. Seven, an evangelistic wake-up call. How many of us can give testimony to the fact that we're Christians today because God came and you know, hit us over the side of the head with a two-by-four? Woke us up. You know. Gee, wake up, fella. 
that's an evangelistic wake-up call. And many of us can give testimonies to that kind of suffering. Another one, a nudge to advance spiritually. And some of us have to suffer because of that. We're taking things for granted or God wants to accelerate our spiritual growth. So he'll kick us in the rear end a couple of times to make us move. Nine, evidence for furthering evangelism. What I mean here is that because God will introduce suffering into our lives because he thinks that we can handle it and we don't know why it's happening. We just, you know, we, we take it right. We, we go take it to the Lord. We walk by faith and we're in the middle of this catastrophe. And we say, gee, poor me, and, and we go through all this, not realizing that over here, over here, and over there, there are unbelievers watching. We don't even know who they are, but they're watching. And they suddenly see, hey, how the heck do these, does this person take all this stuff? They must have something I don't. And that attracts them to the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's a pattern. Evidence for furthering evangelism. God allows it to happen because we become an evidence piece to some unbeliever that we may even not even know of that's watching our lives. Evidence for edifying other believers. Sometimes we're suffered, and many of them in the Old Testament, David's a good example of that, of suffering after he confessed his sin. Before he confessed his sin, it was number five. After he was confessing his sin, it could be number ten. That suffering was allowed because that's a demonstration to encourage us. How many of us have been encouraged by David's psalms? Would he have ever written the psalms if he hadn't suffered? So that's suffering number 10. Now 11 is a real spooky one. And that is, the New Testament also reveals that you can suffer and God allows it to happen in your life and it seems utterly unrelated. There's nothing you consciously have known that you've done wrong but it just piled got dumped on you all of a sudden. And the Bible tantalizingly mentions, it's oblique, not direct, but angels are also watching. Unseen principalities and powers that watch, and they watch, and they watch, and they learn, and they learn. There are passages in the New Testament that talk about them watching what goes on in church service. They're present, walking around. And you go, wow, I never saw one. But they're there, because Corinthians says they're there. So, these are patterns. Now, why, why, why the word pattern in this chart on page 30? The word pattern is there because it goes back to God who is omniscient. God is omniscient. And He has a pattern to history, including our personal histories. You see? Make this translation now from what we've observed in the macro scale of Old Testament history. That these guys are sitting there, they're looking at all the stuff that's going on. But they're looking at it with a very careful spiritual eye. They're asking, what is God doing here in the middle of all this? Well, they're models for us because we have our own little personal histories and we can do the same thing. Now, we don't have the direct illumination necessarily, but here we've got 11 possible reasons to deal with a suffering situation. And you can review those and say, all right, I see the big picture. The big picture is the diagram that we've given that evil is bracketed, that one day it's going to be ripped aside and separated from good. We know that's the big picture. That's the ultimate answer. But then we have these fine scale features that we can apply. Now, in all of this, we haven't answered one question. And, of course, the alert non-Christian will say, raise his hand, say, excuse me, but there's one question you haven't answered. Why did God allow this to happen? 
We don't know why God allowed that to happen. We can only give the biblical answer, which is, I did it for my glory. And that sounds harsh. You mean to say that God created history in which millions of people would die, innocent babies would, would die of all kinds of diseases, and He did it for His own glory? Yes, that is the biblical answer. And let's not be shy about it. Let's not back off and say, well, we really don't mean that. Well, yes, we do really mean that. That's what the Scripture says. And that's where the Scripture leaves it. So you salute and say, yes, sir, and move on. That's all the answer we've got right now. Ah, now we're ready to go back to the passage that we're looking at in our notes on page 48. And and we also, at the same time, want to turn to Romans chapter 3. The Old Testament saints knew less than we did, and they had a mystery that we we no longer have. And I want you to see that these guys handle themselves magnificently when faced with a problem that God has solved for us, and He didn't solve it for them. And we're going to use the analogy of the argument from the lesser to the greater. I'm going to argue that God resolved this Old Testament mystery in the New Testament... And therefore, our mystery, that is the mystery of evil, will be resolved in the future to our satisfaction in God. I mean, it will be resolved. But so, the answer to the problem of why did He make the universe, we don't know what the answer is this hour. But God, one day, we will see why and we will be able to praise Him for creating the history in which there was hell, suffering, death, and sorrow some way He's going to show us that he was right after all and it was for his glory. We don't know what this answer is, but I'm going to take you to a smaller problem, the Old Testament mystery, and watch how he solves it. If you look on page 48, the unresolved mystery of the prophets. The dual-track ministry of the prophets had emphasized the tension between Israel's sin and God's election. The prophets announced that a solution was forthcoming to resolve the tension. What they did not do was spell out how the holy, righteous Yahweh would reconcile the rebellious, sinful nation to unbroken, eternal fellowship with Himself. Now look at that sentence. That sentence is carefully constructed. It's got a contradiction in it. How can you have a holy, righteous Yahweh coming into eternal, unbroken fellowship with a sinful nation? It's the reverse of the question you always hear, well, how can a loving God send people to hell? You know what the answer to that is? How can a holy God send people to heaven? It's the other side of the coin. Still got the problem. And in the Old Testament, they had this problem. But now in Romans chapter 3, verse 25. Let's go over to the New Testament for a moment and see how Paul says that there was an Old Testament mystery that the poor saints of the Old Testament never, never could figure out. Here it is. Talking about the death of the Lord Jesus Christ for our sins, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith, that was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God... Now, this sentence in the end of verse 25 is Old Testament forbearance of God. This is how Old Testament saints were saved were to demonstrate His right because in the forbearance of God, He, past tense, 
He passed over the sins previously committed. Now somehow that was happening in the Old Testament and it caused great pondering by godly saints. How can this holy God forgive me? How can He forgive me? How can He forgive our nation? How does He pass over sins committed? Now, verse 26, Paul answers that. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, that He may be just and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Here's the deal. What Paul says is that the cross of Jesus Christ answers the Old Testament question. In the Old Testament, the question was, if I am a sinner and I merit death, and God would punish me forever and ever because I am a sinner, how, if God is righteous, here He is, He's holy and righteous, and one of His other attributes is what? Immutability. He can't change. And He's eternal. Let's take those three attributes together and think about them for a minute. If He's holy, and He never can change, and He's eternally existing, how do you get that together with this guy down here? That's the mystery. How can God be just? That was the question. How can He be holy or just? And the justifier, the guy who declares righteous, the sinner. How does this happen? And the New Testament answers it in the cross because on the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ takes the sin of the sinner upon Himself and dies on the cross and trades His righteousness for the sin of the sinner. It's a transaction. We don't know all the details, but the cross solves the unresolved dilemma in the Old Testament. Now, what is my argument tonight? The argument is this, that the Old Testament saints had to walk, really, with two of these mysteries. And probably the pagans, ha, 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 you believe in this holy Yahweh. Well, that's great. I know what you're like. How do you have the right to claim that you're going to be in eternal fellowship in the kingdom of God forever and ever and I get go to hell? How can you say that? And the Old Testament saying, I don't know how. He's, he's going to do it though. I'm convinced he's going to do it. He's got to because what does the covenant say? The seed of Abraham is going to be where? With him forever. I'm the seed of Abraham. I believe like Abraham so I'm going to be with him forever. How is he going to do it? I have no idea. Oh, well, you're just believing in irrationalism. That's just, that's just hocus-pocus stuff. No. It's not because God has it on His mind. He just hasn't told me yet. So the idea of rational reasons does exist. It's located not here, though. It's located there. So it's a debate over where the omniscience is to be located. Is it with man or is it with God? And if omniscience exists with God, then we have a plan here. And the New Testament, the plan comes into fruition in the historic cross outside the city of Jerusalem in a dramatic moment. And what Paul argues is that now we know what the Old Testament saint could never have known. And therefore, he concludes, verse 27, where is your boasting? In other words, it's done in such a magnificent way that human works are excluded, period. Not one work that you and I do amounts to hill of beans in this solution. This has nothing to do with your personal good works. 
Don't add a thing to this. This is Jesus Christ's atonement on the cross and His righteousness given to us and that's the basis of my security with God. It has nothing whatsoever to do with any good works, any merit on my part. So, what Paul's arguing is that not only did God resolve this mystery, He did it in such a stunning way. Satan didn't even know it, by the way. See? Most brilliant creature never knew what was being pulled off. Who was it that set up the, mecha, the, the scheme to kill Christ? You think Satan would have done that if he knew what was going to happen? No. He got aced. He set the deal up with Judas Iscariot to get rid of Jesus, thinking he was going to be solving a problem. Yeah, he solved the problem, all right? Solved everybody's problem. Thank you. So, in a magnificent chess game maneuver... Satan got outmaneuvered, and out of this comes our salvation. So, once again, the argument. God resolved this by a few more centuries. In 700 B.C., this was a mystery. By plus 40 A.D., it was no longer a mystery. It only took seven and a half centuries, and that mystery was cleared up. And I dare say that we are at the point in history where only a few more centuries will clear up the other question. Because God, when He reveals it to us, our hearts will rejoice and say, yes, this is a stunning answer. I would never have thought you could have done it this way. Because that's what's happening in the New Testament. We never envisioned the God of the Old Testament able to do this. It's stunning. And we mustn't ever take it for granted. All right, next week we're going to get into some of the doctrinal fallout of all this in uh, the doctrine of sanctification. Father, thank you for who you are, that you are immutable, that you are holy, that you are sovereign, and in your amazing way, your loving plan of salvation, you are able to pull such stunning things off that we can sit back and worship you and adore your character through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Minutes for uh, some question and answer. So if you uh, would like to go and redevelop a topic or an area that you think we hastily passed over, uh, now's your opportunity. There are, uh, the, in the Corinthian co uh, correspondence of Paul, he mentions that um, uh, had the prince of this world known, he wouldn't have done it. And so, so it, it represents a, a momentous miscalculation. A brilliant plan, but brilliantly wrong. And it was so brilliantly executed, I mean... Uh, I mean, here Satan basically uses Judas Iscariot, one of the inner circle, 
uh, he uh, meticulously weaves a schema um, of uh, conspiracy with the ruling class. Um, he has people of his own circle betray him. Um, it was very skillfully done. The problem was that C.S. Lewis in the Narnia Chronicles always points out is that um, you know, in C.S. Lewis Narnia Chronicles, if, if you, by the way, don't have that for your children, that's a neat thing to have. Um, the, uh, he has two chapters. I think it's the line which in the wardrobe, in which one of the chapters is entitled Magic from the Dawn of Time. And then he has the next chapter, Magic from Before the Dawn of Time. And, and that's his way of saying Satan is the magic from the creation. But God is an, has magic from prior to the creation. So the, the cross is all kinds of intrigue. I mean, if you really want to get into intrigue, there's a lot of it in that drama. But what we wanted to emphasize tonight was that the revelation was not known. Prior to the cross, no living Old Testament saint, David, Solomon, Jeremiah, Isaiah, none of those guys, as godly as they were, had a clue to how you could reconcile God forgiving sinful people so they could be eternal and broken fellowship. It was not, it's, never, it's always said that he will do it, but you don't have a clue how he will do it. And that's, that's important for us because that meant that Isaiah, Jeremiah, D Daniel, David, and all those guys, they weren't stupid. They thought they were just as smart as we are. They had just the same kind of questions we have. But they had to resolve it, and they had to walk by faith. And you can't walk by faith if you have nagging questions. I mean, in the sense that you can't rest. Faith has to rest in confidence. And... Where do you get the confidence? Well, God has to reveal it to you, open your heart to it. But faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, so we have the Word of God, and the Holy Spirit somehow works the truth out of the Word of God into our hearts. But if He doesn't do that, we can sit here and fulminate and go through all kinds of religious hoopla, and it still doesn't amount to hell beans because it's all put on stuff. It's got to come by an encounter with the Holy Spirit and through the gospel of Christ. So that's one of the things we, that the Old Testament saint, those guys had fantastic faith to live through the destruction of their country. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. Um, it's, it, in the uh, exile, we're going to pick up the next big event that happens in the Old Testament is the exile. All these guys are prisoners of war. Daniel, he gets as a young teenager. He gets hostage. He's basically part of a hostage group of noble children taken out of Israel over to a Gentile court, kept there so that the Jews behave themselves. The Jews didn't behave themselves, they kill them. And it was just part of a little hostage arrangement. And here's Daniel. And then what happens? God works in Daniel's life, so he turns into the, basically what we would call the foreign minister of Iraq and Iran. Foreign minister of both those countries. So it's an amazing story um, how those people in the Old Testament put up, the believers, I mean, put up with what they had to put up with. In Elisha's day, they put up with a totally corrupt monarchy. They put up with a phony religion that was state-sponsored. They had to hide from a nation. And they were in the nation that was God's chosen nation. They had to hide inside the nation to avoid the police, to avoid the, the, the uh, 
politicians that were after them, and they had to flee. 7,000 of them had to live in underground lives, just like the believers in China today and the Sudan. We're graced out that in this country we still can open our mouth for the Lord, but there's a lot of places. Um, Chuck Colson said, you know, more Christians have been killed in the 20th century than all 19 centuries of church history. See, we forget that. And that's, that's in, right now in Sudan, you can buy a Christian slave for 25 bucks. So um, it's going on. Just, we tend to not see it because we're in America. But the Old Testament saint lived through all that horror and he did it with faith. And that's Paul's, Paul's point in the New Testament. These guys didn't do it by their works. They didn't do it because they were getting goody-goody points for keeping the Mosaic Law. Because most of them knew very well that they couldn't keep it. And yet, they knew in the Psalms, I delight in your law. Well, why would a person say, I delight in your law, when they were constantly thwarted um, by not keeping it? Because their confidence must have been in the fact that they, they really were acceptable to God. David says, blessed is the man on whom God imputes righteousness. And he will not, you know, forgives him. Paul quotes that in Romans chapter 4. So David knew that. The Old Testament saints knew that. That's an amazing, it's a really amazing point. Um, are there any other questions on this prophetic section? Because we're going to leave it tonight and move on. Yes. saying there by leaving it at I did it for my glory's sake what I'm trying to avoid there Debbie is um, a problem comes up sometimes when we say that that's the only way God could have done it in, in the sense that he was constrained by something external to himself and that's not what you're saying I know uh, we would say that that's the only way he could do it maybe with respect to his own character but we have to be careful that God was not constrained by something external to himself. And that's all, all we intend to say. So if he wasn't constrained by anything external to himself, then it was his choice. And he, he freely chose to create the history he did. He wasn't, nobody twisted his arm to, to do it this way. He chose to do it this way. And you're right, he chose to do it in a magnificent way that makes use of responsible creatures. I also hesitate personally to use the word free will not because I don't believe that in personal responsibility, but because down through church history, the word free will has been used by non-Christians in an autonomous sense, that man has the freedom to do anything. And that's not what we mean either. We're constrained by our creation design.
Okay, we're not ever converted into robots. And the difference between, remember when we were talking about creation two years ago, we said man is made in God's image. Well, part of being made in God's image is that we carry choice within ourselves. And it's a finite replica of what his sovereignty is like. But we're, since we're made in his image, we ha carry that. If you have a dog or a cat um, or an animal of any sort, they have instinct. The area of human behavior that's instinctive for us is very small. Most of our behavior, think about it, is learned behavior. Well, why does why the human being have this massive area? Well, we have to learn. We have to learn, for example, to drink water. An animal doesn't. An animal intuitively knows when it's dehydrated. A human being, we, we have a hard time doing that. So there are all areas of our lives where we are constantly having to learn, and it's part of God's design, is that he's deliberately made us in poverty in instinct. Animals are pre-programmed to do lots of things instinctively, and we lack that. And I think it's the very part of his design that he wants us to live our lives in conscious obedience to him. We have to go through the choices because it's going through the choices where we learn about ourselves and him. So, any other questions? Okay, well... Um, See you in two weeks, three weeks. Not next week, not the next week, but the third week.